Sometimes going to the grocery store can be chaotic. There doesn't seem to be enough time to check the list, make sure everything is there, search for the best prices, and take the time to make sure you get the best quality meat. So let ButcherBox help you out. Giving you peace of mind, ButcherBox delivers high-quality meat and seafood that you can trust straight to your door. No grocery carts required. Humanely raised, no antibiotics or hormones, 100% grass-fed, free-range, and crate-free, what more can you ask for? What about free shipping, customized box plans, exclusive member deals, recipe inspirations, tips, and tricks? You really can't go wrong with ButcherBox. Sign up at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breasts, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com slash morning cup and use code morning cup to choose your free for a year offer plus get $20 off your first order. Hey guys, I have a podcast that I think you'll really enjoy. Proof, the investigative true crime podcast co-hosted by Susan Simpson of Undisclosed and Jacinda Davis of Evil Lives Here is releasing its highly anticipated second season where they investigate the murder of 18-year-old Renee Ramos. The first season, which if you haven't listened to yet, you totally should, saw the release of two Georgia men serving life sentences for murdering their friend, Brian Bowling. And thanks to evidence unearthed by proof, on December 8th, 2022, both Daryl Lee Clark and Kane Joshua Story were finally freed after 25 years behind bars. With that same investigative drive, Susan and Jacinda are on the case again, and this time, they are on the streets of Manteca, California, to find out who really killed Renee Ramos. In proof, murder at the warehouse, you hear how, on June 5th, 2000, Renee's body was found buried beneath a pile of debris inside a new Home Depot building. And how, despite tips hinting at alternate suspects, her boyfriend, 18-year-old Jake Silva, and 33-year-old Ty Lopez were arrested and convicted of her murder. Fans of true crime and investigative series won't want to miss this riveting new season. Follow the case as Susan and Jacinda uncover long-overlooked evidence about what really happened to Renee, by listening to Proof, Murder at the Warehouse, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is sponsored by Myths, Magic, and Murder Podcast. Guys, I have a new podcast obsession that I have to tell you about. Myths, Magic, and Murder. Kate, a psychology graduate, and Abby, a demonologist, get together to talk about everything ranging from true crime, the paranormal, urban legends, cryptids, occult crimes, and everything in between with a sprinkling of hilarious banter, a lot of interesting information, and a ton of spookiness. This is absolutely a horror comedy podcast created by horror enthusiasts for horror enthusiasts. You get two stories each episode, and there are over 40 episodes as of now that are absolutely binge-worthy. Check them out today for some lighthearted and casual conversations about everything creepy you've ever wanted to know about. Subscribe to Myths, Magic, and Murder today on all of the usual places you find your podcasts. There were two more murders 15 miles away. When police arrived, they found the telephones and electricity lines. We have a... Weird homicide. A scene described by one investigator as reminiscent of a weird... Morning. Cup of murder. Sometimes it takes a trial to really find out what happened in a case. 
On October 15, 2005, the wife of a prominent attorney in California was found dead inside of her home. And it wouldn't be until the trial began that the story of what really happened and how her teenage neighbor was involved finally came to light. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, sit back and start your day with a morning cup of murder. Scott Edgar Dialski, born October 30th, 1988, was raised by a single mother following his parents' separation when he was just three years old. Moving to California with his mother during elementary school, Scott began living in the home of a family of friends while attending the Lafayette public school system. Despite the fact that his mother was twice divorced and his father had remarried, Scott's life was pretty normal. He was a Boy Scout, played Little League, and loved his family and friends. Then, the unthinkable happened. While still in school, Scott's 18-year-old sister suddenly died in a serious car accident, ripping away the one strong, consistent family member he felt he had. His classmates would later say it was like a switch flipped within the, quote, normal kid. He started coming to school wearing all black, donning a trench coat no matter what the weather was, and circling his eyes with black eyeliner, a look described as odd and uncommon within his school. But despite his outward appearance and standoffish demeanor, Scott was known as the nice kid by his fellow classmates. Then Scott's family unit deteriorated once more. While studying art at a local community college in October 2005, Scott got the news that his father and stepmother were getting a divorce. Something about this final blow was enough to turn the teenager into a complete monster. Three days later, a woman named Pamela Vitale, wife of a prominent California attorney, was found lying dead in the entryway of her rural Lafayette home, bludgeoned and eviscerated to death. Five days later, on October 20th, just 10 days before his 17th birthday, Scott Dialski, Pamela's neighbor, was arrested on suspicion of committing the murder. This was confirmed when DNA testing proved that the blood found on his recovered clothing matched that of Pamela Vitale, as well as his own DNA. During his preliminary trial, Scott was initially represented by an attorney named Thomas McKenna, but he later removed himself from the case because he defended the driver who killed Scott's sister back in 2002. He was then represented by a public defender and pleaded not guilty to the charges against him. According to the testimony given at Scott's trial, one given by friend Robin Crowen, who was granted immunity in exchange, he and Scott had been planning to start growing marijuana in Scott's closet, but needed some money to get the necessary equipment. They couldn't ask their parents for the cash, so instead, they used stolen credit card information that Scott got from his neighbors in order to get things like lighting equipment for their grow operation. Everything seemed to be going well, with Robin claiming the extent of his role was researching the equipment, until Scott accidentally registered for a credit card for Karen Schneider, but mistakenly wrote down the Vitale's address for billing and his own as the ship-to address. The company refused to process the order, suspecting that there was some fraud involved, so Scott told Robin that he would, quote, take care of it, and called the company to make one more attempt. Because of the information given, investigators surmised that Scott was breaking into the Vitale home and was surprised to find Pamela still there. 
that this was all simply a robbery gone wrong or possibly as a case of mistaken identity, claiming that he thought he went over to the house of Karen Schneider, the same neighbor who accidentally ran over his dog just 15 days before Pamela's murder and may have discovered his credit card scam and was instead surprised by Pamela's sudden appearance. However, not everyone agreed. Jenna Reddy, Scott's girlfriend, testified at trial that Scott had been talking about beating and breaking the necks of children for quite a bit, wondering what it would feel like and how the body could perform without certain organs. And given the severe state of Pamela's body and the carved symbol on her back, some were inclined to believe that this was his way of acting on these fantasies. According to the prosecutor, Harold Jewett, who sought to prove his gothic appearance was an indicator of his guilt, the symbol found on Pamela's back closely resembled the letter H, found in the word hate from a bumper sticker recovered in Scott's bedroom. It read, I'm for the separation of church and hate. Other reports indicated it was a symbol called the Cross of Lorraine. The brutal details of her gruesome murder, coupled with a to-do list that made the crime appear premeditated, completely overshadowed his lawyer's arguments that he was a gentle kid who valued human and animal rights. Then came the arguments of DNA. The clothing in which the DNA samples were found was stashed inside of a duffel bag in an abandoned van on the property where Scott was living, just a 10-minute walk from the trailer where Pamela and her husband were living while they built their grandiose Italian-style mansion. According to the experts, blood was found on the four areas of the balaclava mask inside of the van, and DNA taken from the mouth area matched Scott Dialski, while the match found on the bottom of Pamela's foot matched Scott's in a 1 to 43,000 statistical match. However, the glove that contained Pamela's blood, one that was found in a box of costumes shared by two other families living with Scott and his mother, had DNA from at least two different people, a fact that the defense tried to use to show that somebody other than Scott must be responsible for murdering Pamela Vitale. Not to mention the fact that, though some testified to seeing scratches on Scott's body after the murder, the only DNA found under Pamela's nails was her own, as well as a number of items that should bear the DNA of the killer that could not be connected to Scott. The jury did, however, determine that the shoe print left behind at the scene did match the shoe belonging to Scott Dialski. The case continued back and forth with the prosecution citing the show Invader Zim and its episode, Dark Harvest, as an inspiration for Pamela's evisceration, and his girlfriend, who was represented by Gloria Allred, stating that he claimed he would take the blame to protect her and his best friend. Scott Dialski never testified in his own case though a number of others testified to his character, including his former stepmother, who said that he was the victim of bad fathering, was raised on a diet of McDonald's and Trick cereal, was never disciplined, and was emotionally abandoned by her ex-husband. Despite the confusing evidence and after several weeks of testimony, Scott Dialski was found guilty of first-degree murder with the special circumstances of murdering in the commission of first-degree residential burglary and an enhancement for using a dangerous weapon. Despite his age, Scott was sentenced to life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. On his 18th birthday, he was transferred to San Quentin Prison before being transferred to Kern Valley several months later. 
Scott's mother was also charged for her role in the crime when it was found that she burned some of his papers and artifacts prior to police search. The charges were later dropped. In 2018, Scott's sentence was reduced to 25 years to life under Senate Bill 394, and he will now be eligible for parole in 2030. In the aftermath of his case, many believe Scott was unjustly convicted, claiming the evidence against him was flimsy and that he lacked an adequate defense team who did not take advantage of the resources at her disposal, nor did she question and follow up on vital testimony. To this day, he has never admitted nor divulged any details about the crime for which he was charged. Thank you for joining me in my morning cup of murder. Please join me again tomorrow to hear what terrible thing happened on October 16th. Don't forget to rate and subscribe and let me know how you like it. If you want to help support the podcast, there's always Patreon or just sharing it with your true crime obsessed friends. And remember, stay safe.